If you would take your Bibles and turn along with me to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3, and we'll, Lord willing, conclude our message series this morning in the book of Titus. One of the chief pursuits of every Christian and of every church ought to be gospel transformation, growth in Christ-likeness. Oh, to be sure, that growth will be gradual, it will be progressive, sometimes it will be three steps forward and two steps back. It will be attended with failures at times, but for genuine Christians, growth in Christ-likeness will happen. Love for others will increase. Hatred of sin will gradually be on the rise. Responses of anger will incrementally wane. And hunger for the truth of God's word will intensify. Christians grow. That growth is, again, sometimes slow, maybe even at times imperceptible, but growth and transformation for the Christian is the norm. And so we can say along with John Newton, the author of that great hymn, Amazing Grace, which we'll sing in just a little bit. He said this, I'm not what I ought to be. I'm not what I want to be. I'm not what I hope to be in another world, but still, I am not what I once used to be, and by the grace of God, I am what I am. That is the Christian's sentiment. I'm not what I ought to be. I'm not what I want to be. I'm not what I hope to be, but still, I'm not what I once used to be by God's grace. As we've seen since we began the study back in February, that's how long we've been in Titus, the message of Titus is that the gospel of God's grace in Jesus not only saves us, but it has a transforming impact upon our lives and upon churches. We've seen that the gospel transforms. It's powerful working from the inside out, transforming individuals, and then transforming Gatherings of individuals in the church. Look with me in chapter 2 at one of the main doctrinal sections of this letter. Titus chapter 2 verses 11 through 14. Look at how the gospel transforms. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us, to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Look at the transformation contained in that passage. Transformation accomplished by the power of God working through the gospel of God. Grace of God has appeared, and the results of this appearing of God's grace are incredible, and they are 
observable. It has brought salvation to all men, opening up the way of salvation to all who will put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. But there's so much more than just salvation. Paul says in there in chapter 2 and verse 12, that the gospel instructs us. Not only are we saved, but we are instructed on a new way of life. It instructs us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. The gospel serves as our constant instructor. It shapes us and molds us so that we are no longer conformed after the pattern of the world, but we are transformed by the renewing of our minds, as Paul says elsewhere in Romans 12. This morning, as we bring this series to a close, we're going to see Paul closing out this letter with ministry details, greetings, and a closing salutation, all of which, at first glance, might seem like it's not that important. It might seem like these things are somewhat meaningless, that we should probably skip over this bit in order to get to more substantial material. But the truth is that every word of God is inspired and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So therefore, our text this morning is profitable, even though it's the closing of a letter. I trust you'll see its profit this morning. Look with me at Titus chapter 3. Verses 12 through 15, as Paul closes out this wonderful letter. Paul writes, he says, When I send Artemis and Tychicus to you, make every effort to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Diligently help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way so that nothing is lacking for them. Our people must also learn to engage in good deeds to meet the pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. All who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. And all God's people said, Amen. Let's pray together. Lord God, we pray that you would show us in these closing words of the Apostle Paul the reality and the need for gospel transformation in our own lives and in the life of our own church. We thank you, Lord, for the beauty of the gospel, its freeness, its fullness. We thank you for the assurance we can have that all of our sins are forgiven and that we have eternal life and that heaven is our home and that you, Lord, are our Savior Lord, we thank you for all of this assurance that comes to us by way of your grace and your grace alone. Lord, we pray that that grace would continue to do its work in us, transforming us, making us more and more like our Savior, Jesus Christ, until the day comes when the Lord Jesus returns and we are made like him seeing him as he is. We long for that day, and until then, Lord, help us to make progress by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. 
This morning, we're going to walk through this passage together and see three lessons we need to learn about gospel transformation. Three lessons we need to learn this morning about gospel transformation. First of all, gospel transformation is enhanced by the faithful ministry of others. Gospel transformation is enhanced by the faithful ministry of others. In other words, gospel transformation is a group project. We do it together. We share in it together. As Paul begins to close out this important letter to Titus, he signals his intention to send one of two faithful Christian servants to relieve Titus. As we saw back in chapter 1, Titus has been left on this island in Greece, the island of Crete, by Paul with a very specific task, a very specific mission. Titus chapter 1 verse 5 says, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. The churches around the island had gotten off to a bit of a rocky start. They were in many cases being led by unqualified, ungodly leaders who were teaching things that were clearly contrary to the scriptures and contrary to the gospel. These false teachers were teaching and leading with impure motives. They wanted simply to gain followers, exert power, and fill their pockets. And as a result, Paul says the churches are in pretty bad shape. And whole households... And families were being upset and upended and led astray as a result. So having left Titus in Crete, Paul is now following up with some needed instructions. Instructions both for Titus and instructions for the churches. With this letter, Paul was delivering to Titus the manual for reforming these churches so that they had a greater gospel purity and greater gospel witness. And in the process, Paul was giving us today a manual for how to be a gospel-transformed church. But after some time, and we're not told how long, Paul was going to send one of two trusted ministry associates to Crete in order to bring relief to Titus so that Titus could be freed up to bring relief to Paul. You've heard of relief pitchers? Well, these are relief preachers. The two men named as potential relievers are Artemis and Tychicus. Artemis. Artemis here is not to be confused with the female goddess Artemis of the Ephesians. Artemis is short for for this longer name, Artemiodorus. I would go with Artemis too. But I bet his friends just called him Art. What we do know is he has a Greek name. But besides this, we know next to nothing about him. We know he's a close associate of the Apostle Paul. He's a trusted asset in Paul's armory of ministry. Tychicus is also mentioned as an option who may be deployed in order to relieve Titus. 
You may remember that when we went through the book of Colossians not that long ago, we talked about Tychicus. And I gave you the challenge that any new babies might be called Tychicus. No one has taken me up on that yet. Colossians 4, 7 mentions Tychicus. As to all my affairs, Tychicus, our beloved brother and faithful servant and fellow bondservant in the Lord will bring you information. High praise from the Apostle Paul for this man with a strange name. Tychicus, we know, was from the Roman province of Asia. He was one of Paul's most trusted ministry partners and accompanied Paul on his journey to Jerusalem in Acts 21. He was also with Paul during his final imprisonment in Rome just before his death. Tychicus was the man who hand-delivered both the letter to the Ephesians and the letter to the Colossians during Paul's first Roman imprisonment. Clearly, Tychicus was a valuable person in Paul's life. Well, once either of these two men arrived in Crete, as they would soon be sent, Titus was to leave and head for the Greek city of Nicopolis, where he will meet up with Paul. So Paul is relieving Titus so that Titus can return and relieve Paul. Paul doesn't hide his desire here to see Titus. He tells him to to, to make every effort to come to me. Get here as quick as you can. A phrase that speaks of the determination and haste that Titus is to show in making his way eventually to Nicopolis. Paul said the same identical thing to Timothy a bit later on in his life during his final Roman imprisonment just before his death. In 2 Timothy 4.9, Paul writes to Timothy and says, Make every effort to come to me soon. And then again, just a few verses later, Make every effort to come before winter. Titus is to eventually meet up with Paul in Nicopolis, also known as Upirus. It was an important maritime city with a strategic port located along the coastline of northern Greece on a peninsula separating two seas situated across from the southern end of Italy. I've included a a map in the app. So if you have the app, you might be able to see where Nicopolis is relative to Crete. The name Nicopolis means city of victory. It was built by Emperor Augustus to commemorate the Battle of Actium. For Titus to travel from Crete to Nicopolis would require a ship journey of 310 miles, something that would take between 5 and 10 days depending on the conditions. The reason for this location is that Paul's decided, for whatever reason, to spend the winter there. Sea travel in winter was often dangerous, wasn't advisable, so Paul is making plans for his winter ministry headquarters. Paul is pictured in this passage as a kind of general who has his lieutenants, and he's arranging them, uh, as it were, on the strategic field of spiritual battle. Paul is writing this letter around 63 AD from either Ephesus or Corinth or possibly Nicopolis, although from what he says here, it seems as though he's not at Nicopolis yet. 
wherever he's writing this, he's probably not in Nicopolis. He plans to go to Nicopolis soon. Wherever Paul is writing this letter from, he makes clear that he desperately wants Titus to join him as soon as either Artemis or Tychicus arrives in Crete. But they're not the only ones headed to Crete. In verse 13, Paul mentions two more of his associates, Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos. These two would be arriving in Crete shortly and they would be spending a short time there, restocking their supplies, probably resting up and probably raising funds for continued ministry elsewhere. So Crete for them is going to serve as a kind of extended layover as they make their way to their final destination. Zenos, the lawyer, lawyer, I'm from Indiana, we say lawyer. I say sawyer, people say sawyer. How's it spelled? Is there an O in there? Did I miss it? Anyway, Zenos, the lawyer. Is mentioned nowhere else in scripture as a Greek name. That means gift of Zeus. He's also said to be an attorney. That's how I get around it. Probably not a Jewish lawyer, but rather a Gentile expert in Greek and Roman law. If so, this is the only Christian lawyer mentioned in the Bible. Proving that while Christian lawyers may be rare, they do exist. (laughs) Along with Zenos would be Apollos. Unlike Zenos, we know quite a bit about Apollos. The great Apollos. He's mentioned ten times in the New Testament. He was a Jew from Alexandria, Egypt. where There was a thriving Jewish community. Within that Jewish community, there were... Genuine Christian believers, Apollos being numbered among them. Turn with me to Acts 18. I just want to show you briefly a little bit about this remarkable man. Acts 18, verses 24 through 28. Acts 18, 24. Luke records for us that a Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, came to Ephesus and he was mighty in the scriptures. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, being acquainted only with the baptism of John. And he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wanted to go across to Achaia, the brethren encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he had arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ." No wonder Paul considered him a valuable and important ally in the spread of the gospel. Now back to Titus chapter 3. 
So these two men would be arriving soon and they would be delivering this letter from Paul to Titus. Titus, having read the letter, would learn that Paul wanted Titus to diligently help Zenos and Apollos on their way so that nothing is lacking for them. Zenos and Apollos would be on Crete for just a short time and Titus was to see to it that they had everything that they needed for the next leg of their journey and the continuation of their mission. Literally, it says, in order that they may lack nothing. Titus was to see to it that these two missionaries were not lacking in support in any way. Now, that's a lot of detail, a lot of historical background. What can we learn from all this? Well, I want you to see that gospel transformation is enhanced by the faithful ministry of others. Paul had sent Titus to Crete to set in order what remained. Titus was valuable to Paul, valuable to the church at Crete. And Paul sent this letter to Titus in the middle of his ministry to help equip him for the task he'd been given. Paul was helping Titus conduct an effective ministry of gospel transformation. And Titus was to help the various churches and the Christians of Crete grow in gospel transformation. Then we have Artemis and Tychicus, who would soon be arriving to relieve Titus and to continue the work of the gospel in the churches of Crete. Then you have Zenos and Apollos, who would be arriving even sooner with this letter in hand and on mission to minister the gospel in regions beyond Crete. What we see here is a small representation of a whole network of people who are committed to the ministry of gospel transformation among all people. Strategies are being deployed. People are being sent out. Plans are being laid. Support is being raised. Folks are encouraged to come alongside and Help in the sending of others to other places. The truth is, God uses the spiritual gifts and dedication of others to grow us in gospel transformation. Paul wrote to the Ephesian church in Ephesians 4. He says that Jesus gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. God uses means in the process of building up His church, in the process of building up Christians. And one of the chief means He uses is other Christians. We need each other. God has given us all different roles and different responsibilities and giftings within the body so that we might help each other in the process of gospel transformation into greater and greater Christ-likeness. God uses the ministries and giftings of others to enhance and even supercharge the process of sanctification in our own lives. 
Titus would do that for the churches of Crete. Paul would do that for Titus. Artemis and Tychicus would pick it up where Titus left off. Zenos and Apollos would take the same ministry of gospel transformation to other places beyond Crete. God's plan for gospel transformation is for other Christians to enhance and amplify that gospel transformation. Paul uses the body metaphor in 1 Corinthians 12 to speak of how each of us is needed for the body to operate properly. That no one is to look down on someone else because because they're not a mouth or an eye. We need the whole body functioning properly in order for each of us to benefit in a maximal way. We need each other's spiritual gifts. If I'm going in alone, spiritually speaking, my growth in gospel transformation will be slowed and stunted. Do you want your growth to be slowed and stunted? I hope not. If you're a true Christian, you got to answer no. You want to grow more. You want to grow in Christ's likeness. And one of the chief ways of doing that is to associate with other believers. To get to know them and to let them get to know you. To be a part of their life and to let them be a part of yours. The reality is we need each other in this process of gospel transformation. Paul knew it. And he developed ministry strategies accordingly. Let us know it as well and strategize appropriately. Second lesson. Gospel transformation results in good deeds. How do I know if I'm growing in gospel transformation, growing in Christ-likeness? Well, where's the good deeds? Show me the good deeds. Titus is instructed to be diligent to meet the needs of his fellow missionaries, Zenos and Apollos. To fully outfit them for the next leg of their journey and to help them fulfill the mission beyond Crete. But then Paul adds this in verse 14. Our people must also learn to engage in good deeds. This is now the sixth time in this short letter that Paul has talked about the necessity of good deeds in the life of the Christian. Christians can sometimes get weird about good deeds. Well, we don't want to confuse work salvation with salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that's right, and that's good. We don't want to confuse those two things. We don't want to be people associated with some kind of a social gospel where we're just going out and handing out daisies and whatever else we might be doing. We don't want to be guilty of that. The reality is good deeds are a primary fruit of a Christian's life. Doing good to others. Meeting needs. Caring. Loving. Extending. Opening up. 
And so in this short letter, Paul mentions good deeds six times. Look with me. We're just going to survey it real quick. Back in chapter 1, verse 16, speaking of the false teachers, they were not known for their good deeds. They were known for their bad deeds. Titus 1.16, they profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deeds. Titus 2.7, where Paul instructs Titus to model good deeds. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds, good works. A little bit later in Titus 2.14, Paul reveals that the doing of good deeds is one of the great purposes of our salvation. Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good deeds. God created you new in Jesus Christ so that you would be zealous for good deeds. Now, I can think of all kinds of things we might be zealous about. We could be zealous about a team. We could be zealous about a hobby. We could be zealous about a career. We could be zealous about our wife or our husband or our children. But are we zealous for good deeds? It's one of the reasons we were saved. Titus 3.1, Titus was to call the church to be vigilant in looking for opportunities to do good deeds. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed. Be ready. Be on the lookout. Be prepared to step in to the void. When no one else is helping, you be there, Christian. You step up. You see a need, you meet it. You don't look around and wait for others. Well, maybe somebody else will take care of this. Titus 3.8. This is a trustworthy statement. Concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. You think Paul's trying to make a point here? These things are good and profitable for men. Titus 3.1 Be ready for every good deed. Titus 3.8 Be careful to engage in good deeds. And here in Titus 3.14 we have a closing reminder of this central concern. Our people must also learn to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. Good deeds are good works. Now, we need to be careful here to understand that these good deeds or good works are not the basis of our salvation. They never could be. Paul has been very clear about what the basis of our salvation is that it is grounded in the grace of God and it is secured by the finished work of Jesus Christ. Not our works, but Christ's work. His act of obedience, His submission to the Father's will, His sacrifice on the cross. That's what saves us. 
not our deeds. Good deeds or good works have never saved anyone. But good deeds are the necessary evidence of our salvation. Good works are not the root of our salvation, but the fruit of our salvation. Good deeds are not the cause of our salvation, but they are the result of our salvation. And Paul is concerned here that the Christians and the churches of Crete would step up to the plate when it comes to doing good deeds and meeting pressing needs. And immediately, when it comes to helping these two missionaries that are headed their way with this letter in hand, Zenos and Apollos, immediately, Titus is to help the church see that their job is to come alongside these two missionaries and help them in whatever way they can and in whatever they need so that they're fully outfitted and ready to go and fulfill the mission that God has given them. No doubt that would involve Christian hospitality. Christians opening their home, sharing a bed with the visitors, the guests, so that they have a welcome place to lay their head, putting them up in their homes. It would likely involve raising funds for them and, of course, learning about their mission and praying for them. These are good deeds. Supporting missionaries is certainly one a very practical way to engage in good deeds. It might be said that these are the best of deeds. Choose one or two of our own missionaries at Cross and Crown here, and you can find them all listed on our website. Subscribe to their newsletters. Learn about their country, their ministry, their challenges. Pray for them. We'd love to help you with that. I'd love to help you with that. Eric Van Oss or Pastor Micah or any of our global outreach team members would love to help you get to know our missionaries and better support their work. These are good deeds. And of course, there's countless other ways we can grow in doing good deeds. But you have to be looking for them. You have to be ready for them. You have to be zealous for them. If you're so consumed with your own life, your own drama, your own concerns, your own timeline, that you never see the needs of others, good deeds will be hard to find, hard to spot. But when you intentionally put the needs of others ahead of yourself, as our Lord did, suddenly the opportunity to do good deeds for others in Jesus' name are everywhere. There are needs everywhere. Just look. And Paul points out the tragedy here. It would be for someone to profess faith in Jesus Christ, to say that they've been transformed by the gospel and yet live a life of fruitlessness when it comes to good deeds. (laughs) What a tragedy. A fruitless Christian is a contradiction in terms. Good deeds are a significant part of the believer's fruitfulness. May the Lord grow us all in doing good deeds to others in Jesus' name and for God's glory. Thirdly, gospel transformation is rooted in God's grace. Gospel transformation is rooted in God's grace. Paul ends this letter here in verse 15 with greetings and a closing salutation. 
All who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Paul sends greetings to those from those who are with him, which presumably includes the four men already mentioned and probably several others. He also sends his greetings to those who love us in the faith. Paul is simply greeting all the Christians on the Isle of Crete. Finally, Paul shares a closing salutation. Grace be with you all. Like good deeds, God's grace has also featured prominently in this letter. Paul began this letter with grace. Titus chapter 1 verse 4. Paul makes clear that he is writing to Titus, my true child in a common faith. And then says this, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Grace and peace to you, Titus. You're in a tough spot. You've been given a difficult job. You're going to get pushed back. I'm praying a blessing over you, Titus. I'm praying grace and peace in your life in abundance. Titus would need it. And then the whole letter is grounded in the gospel of God's grace. Paul has grounded all of the moral instruction in this letter on the gospel of God's grace. People could live transformed lives, lives different than the world, only because of God's grace. People were saved only because of God's grace. Look with me at Titus chapter 2, verse 11. In one of these prolonged sections of, of gospel grace, Paul writes, he says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. The grace of God put on shoes. The grace of God put on clothing. The grace of God put on flesh in the person of Jesus Christ and appeared and brought salvation to all men. Skip over to Titus chapter 3 verse 7, another extended section on the gospel and its transforming power of our lives. Being justified by God's grace, we are made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. It's all of grace, God's grace. Our salvation from beginning to end is all of God's grace. God's grace is His act of freely giving to us a salvation that we could never earn or deserve. Not in a thousand lifetimes could we earn or deserve God's grace, but He gives us what we could never earn or deserve as a free gift. Because he is a God who is gracious and merciful, long-suffering, patient. A God who saves those who cannot save themselves. God's grace manifested in Jesus Christ saves us, unites us, empowers us, 
uplifts us, equips us, keeps us, and one day will lead us to our heavenly home. Amen? All of God's grace. God's grace is the center of the Christian's life. The center of the Christian's salvation. And the central principle behind Jesus' incarnation and saving work on the cross. It all goes back to God's grace. I wonder this morning, have you received God's grace? Have you received the gift of God's grace by trusting in His Son, Jesus Christ, for salvation and new life? If you haven't, God presents Himself to you today as a loving Father who sent His own Son to die on your behalf. To take your sin and your guilt upon Himself on the cross. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He died that you might have your sins forgiven and have eternal life if you'll but believe on Him and trust in Him and Him alone. He'll change your life. He'll transform your life if you ask Him. God's amazing grace, saving us, transforming us, producing in us good deeds that for all eternity will redound to His glory. Oh God, please transform us by Your grace. Transform us as a people, as a church, by your grace, by the gospel, and for your glory. Let's pray together. Our Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you that you are the way, the truth, and the life. That to see you is to see a manifestation of God's grace. God's grace incarnated. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for purchasing our freedom and our pardon. Thank you that through your condemnation, we have been welcomed into the family of God. Thank you that through your rejection, We have been received with open arms. Thank you, Jesus, for your grace. And now as we seek to live for you until you come again, we pray that you continue this process of gospel transformation in our lives, producing us a bumper crop of good deeds. That seeing our good deeds, unbelievers around us might glorify God on the day of visitation. Lord, we ask it for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.